Okay, so um, last week we did a shiva the chesh of the food, and the, aside from the question of how how complicated the lumdus was, it was not quite as complicated as shir, and how we handled the. I'm gonna take this. this is okay, I take this. Yeah. Um, that um, the, the really interesting thing was after going through a whole psak about why you couldn't actually hold the person to the contract, mm-hmm. he then held the person to the contract. Uh, right, so that's one of the ways in which one has to be careful about how one gets the the relationship between uh, theoretical halacha and practical halacha, because after all that, so he said the way he got there was by saying that a beitin is always pshara karav ladin. So, right, so even though he understood it halacha, he couldn't actually uh, evening him. Um, even though he understood it halacha, he couldn't actually um, impose on the person in question, the Malamed in question, right? It was a British, British teacher. They couldn't actually impose on him the responsibility to fulfill his deal. And, right, and even he couldn't even impose on him to return all the money he had been given as a retention bonus. But he tells him, but it's the right thing to do. And he imposes it on him. Right. So now there are other ways to get there. I saw a tshuva from the Imre Ish this week that I think did the following. So when we did last week's tshuva, we pointed out that there's a mechanism which is, makes it very hard to run halachic commercial law according to Din. It's one of the reasons that we always say Pshara Kurv Ladin when you sign a Beitin contract. What is does that it, mean? Yeah. It's justice, essentially, right? It means like a, you know, literally a compromise close to the law. It gives mortal wiggle room to the, uh-huh. to the Anim because for, not to rule on technicalities. So it where, also, where is that phrase used? It's in the, in the, in the, when you sign any arbitration agreement okay. in Beitin, right? It will always say Pshara Kurv Ladin. It will never say Din. Uh, we don't want to decide according to law. Right. Um, one of the reasons for that is that halachic choshen um, mishpat is this. We have a, we have a standard practice called right, which you all know. Hamosim mecharel avaraya, right? Hamosim mecharel avaraya means it's very hard to move money. Right. And then there's a super way of doing that, which is a principle called kimli. So kimli means that in money cases, if right, if I sue you. If there's any viable halachic position that supports you, then you're entitled to say that you hold like that position, and the judge can't impose their halachic position on you. So that makes it almost impossible to take right to take money away. That's why I try to talk about whether the shulchan aruch is is a good thing or not. Um, so one of the things I try and teach people generally that, that there's real importance in at least certain aspects of halacha in eliminating positions, and that generally the purpose of psak this. Gets, drives people crazy when I say it publicly, but I'll say it again because I think people understand it. The purpose of psak is to eliminate options, mm-hmm. not to create them. Because otherwise, right, pluralism makes it impossible to run a legal system. Mm-hmm. So Kimli makes it almost impossible to run a functional legal system because all it means is you, you need an expensive enough rabbi. Right. You get an expensive enough rabbi, they'll think of a plausible halachic argument. And if judges can't rule against any plausible halachic argument, right, then you're sunk. So Pshara Kerv Ladin is one way of avoiding that. So the Imre H has a trivia on this, which I thought was really doing something similar. And I think it's a fairly common mechanism, but I'm, I'm not sure of it. What he says is, I, I got this child secondhand. The parties didn't send it to me. The rabbis who were doing it sent it to me. Now, I can't treat it as a Choshen Mishpat case, because in a Choshen Mishpat case, I have an obligation to hear the parties directly in front of each other, and there are all these technical requirements. Mm-hmm. Now, the principle of Kimli only applies in a Choshen Mishpat case. So what he says is, I'm not going to deal with this as a Chosh Mishpat case, which, requ- which is a Beitin case. I'm going to deal with it as an ordinary halachic question. What's the right, right? People are asking me an Isra Vahetra question. What should I do? And not a, not a Dayanus question, which is, where does the money go? And based on that, then he can ignore Kimli all the way through because he's just giving his suck. 
Right? So that's another mechanism where somebody finds a way to, right, to evade the mechanics of the system in order to get to the right result. And it's one of the things that plainly in a functioning legal system, you have to find ways um, to handle it. So the Shulchan Aruch has great value in Chosh and Mishpur, did for hundreds of years, because the rule we said was, if it's not in Shulchan Aruch, it doesn't count. So coming up with all the Rishonim that we discovered, right, and say, look, there's a vision in the Rishonim that, you, that you're relying on, it doesn't matter if the Shulchan Aruch didn't, didn't, didn't paskin like it, it's out. And that really is important in Chosh and Mishpah. Now, it may be that in other areas you want to go the other direction and say, look, no, right, well, why should we limit ourselves? We need other options, uh, right? So that's like, you know, do we want to apply the same thing to Agunos as we do to, um, right? But the, you can see the argument the other way around, right? That if you, that if, right, that in, for Agunos situations, often the claim is you have to satisfy every position. So it's very useful to say, no, I only have to satisfy every position in Shulchan Aruch. <laughs> right, if there's something that's not there, I don't have to do that. So, right, so that's a, those are general things that need to be that need to be explored. It's very hard to run any commercial law system, really any system that functions as law, if you don't have enough cases to build reliance, so that, right, and to eliminate uh, intellectual possibilities. And then one of the challenges of halacha, especially if you wanted to rebuild commercial halacha in modern orthodoxy, is that we simply don't have enough cases. And so people don't know what the law would be in all the new situations. The Beit of America is putting out a journal now, which is trying very nicely to build an array of theoretical precedents. Um, so he's saying that the corpus of Shiloh's Shuvot is not relevant case law for that. It's not determined. First of all, it's often not. It's often not determinative enough because you have like seven different traditions going around, going around and didn't communicate with each other, and now we're all of a sudden bringing them into communication with each other. So there might be set right. It's, you know, as if as if you had you know, law developing entirely independently in, in fifty states, right. and then all of a sudden you right, you need a single system. Right. So how do they right, how do you handle that right? So you you can try and build precedents over time, but it's very but it's very hard to spend, right if you right, you know if you don't have rules about which, right, or what are you, a German, or are you a Polish, right, right. or a Czechoslovakian, when you made the contract, you had no idea, right. right? The point I try to make often is that law, to be just law, right, most of justice is, in law, in money, is making things work out, in, in a legal system, is making things work out the way people expected them to. But if there are no expectations, you can't do that. Mm-hmm. Right, then you get into, right, so, you know, that, that, then you get into, um, you know, into spending enormous amounts of money on lawyers, when there's no justice at all, because if nobody, or if nobody knows what to have expected, yeah. there's no basis, you can't do anything. So in halakha, there often are no expectations now. Uh, right? So again, the RCA Beitin is trying to fix that by putting out expectations of precedent so that people can have some idea. Mm-hmm. Uh, but not so many people learn them before they make the contract, so it lets them have some idea before they go to court. <laughs> but, doesn't add, but it's still hard to have justice if people didn't know what to expect when they made the contract. Um, or they don't know which, thing, which, which mechanisms you look through and which mechanisms you enforce, which is really challenging. Split, 
you, 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 you're almost saying like you want to get to you know, you, there is a there is a correct din you need to get to it um, and you can't just sort of split it you know out, out of suffix yeah right so, right, so it's like yeah okay, suffix is a uh, you know sometimes it's the right answer but it's but sometimes it's just a cop out right you right, can't make right. up your mind right that's fair uh, we don't have I mean I I think again I, I don't know enough about what goes on in 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 Haredi courts I read the Israeli um, to some extent, Israeli debating decisions, and it's clear to me that in many cases they don't have a functioning legal system because uh, right? there's people don't know what to expect. Uh, now there are important and now you can as you have, can have the American law, you can have a single radical judge who creates precedence. Right, Diane Sherman in Israel, um, you know whether you agree with where he goes, where he doesn't agree where he goes, like he creates massively effective precedence if people were to follow him. Um, and we have to figure out, you know, like, so like he rules, right? We talked this a couple of years ago. He rules that Dina Malchus Adina doesn't apply to contracts in the Haredi sector. Israeli, Israeli law, Israeli labor law doesn't apply to contracts in the Haredi sector because nobody ever expected it to be enforced. <laughs> I mean, that's, a, that's an amazing thing. That's an absolutely amazing thing. He says, look, nobody's ever tried to enforce it before. Obviously, this is not real law. I think that actually is a very, I, I, th- I, I think that it's, um, it's deeply implausible, whether it's right or wrong to go at whatever speed, it's deeply implausible that there's a Dina Malchus Adina issue uh, about, spe- about speeding laws. Even if you think that speeding laws are generally subject to Dina Malchus Adina, which is a whole separate question, whether they apply to anything other than monetary expectations. But a law that 90% of the people violate every day Right? It's very hard to view as law right. in the sense, right? The government doesn't actually want people not to speed. Right. Right? It wants people to speed and pay tickets. But it doesn't, right? it doesn't want them to be right. right? The whole, right? That's a whole, I think that's a, you know, there is a, there is a constitutional law professor in Virginia who is trying to take this to the Supreme Court. Uh, uh, but, uh, but I think, it, you know, to argue that there is a religious imperative to obey speeding laws is uh, very, very, other than in ways which, Right, which endanger, right, which you obviously have an obligation to be safe, the obligation not to endanger the people around you. If you think that obeying speeding laws is the way, to, is the only way to do that within a reasonable cost-benefit ratio, then absolutely In so. In some places, it might be more dangerous to obey the speeding. Yeah, well, I'm teasing my wife. It's like, but you know, but rear-ending, right? That's a. <laughs> but uh, you know, it, you could argue. Look, you know, there are like red lights. There's an obligation to obey even when there's no one there, because it's very dangerous for society. Right, the question is, what happens when there's a police car there looking at you and saying, right, you know, the speed limit is 65, I don't let me catch you going 90. Right. Right, that's the whole, right, that's the whole, you know, does this policeman have the authority to assist, right? Who, who is the malchuta, the dina malchuta, right? These are all questions. But these, you know, that's, the, my main point tonight is just commercial law requires, justice requires expectations. We don't have those expectations, so you reach us, you have to know what sort of framework they're working against. Is the, ex- the lack of expectations because, again, uh, these different, Rulings and or communities are more uh, disenfranchised or more distant or less uh, less cohesive. And is that just enough cases, not enough cases. Not enough cases, you're saying. Not enough cases to. Uh, well, when you say expectations, I mean it's based on if the expectations are based on case, you know, some critical volume of case law. I mean, the average person is not going to be a, <coughs> you know, uh, well, a, a legal scholar who who would direct. So what, so what is meant to ask expectations? Right, that's a fair question. So some of it is just because, you know, it's not just what, it's what rabbis teach in shul and what people are taught in day school and all those sorts of things. Some of it is because the contracts are written with expectations, contracts are written with expectations about how they will be interpreted. Every lawyer will tell you that if you try a first contract, right, that's like 
Who knows what's going to happen the first time you write a contract? Right. right? But you write a contract, and over time, the judges give you instruction. This is how I'll take that. Right. But then you get to halacha. We don't know. Mm-hmm. Right? We don't know how we're going to interpret the contract. Right? You know, and there are all sorts of areas of law that we've never, right, we've never addressed the question of how we're going to handle that. It makes it very, very hard. Right. Um, you know, how, how do we regard? You know, there have been cases where really important stuff happened. Um, like there are famous halacha cases about rent control laws. Right, that's a really right, well, the rent control laws are binding. That's a really that was a really important right. um, thing in uh, in in halakhic history. What reason, you know that's, but we're dealing with two legal systems, and you know, if you were to come to me now, like see, see, so look, you could someone who knows me could say, okay, he has a bias towards believing that you should work with expectations, and that means that generally the default in halacha is the outcome should be the same as it would be if you went to secular court right. unless there's an, over, right, an overriding system of justice. Right? You would know that about me. Right. Um, but, that's, you know, but, you, but you wouldn't necessarily know that about another beit in. Mm-hmm. Right? So that's why you have to build up, uh, thought about, you're still thinking about whether it makes sense to set up a small claims halacha court uh, here, you know, or just run on Sunday mornings. Right. And slowly build up expectations that because otherwise, how can you tell people to go to bait them when they don't know what the outcome's going to be? Right. Uh, right. So the prenup, for example, right, we let people we tell people to sign because that we have a very clear set of expectations that a baitin is going to uphold the prenup, mm-hmm. and that's why in the prenup it specifies the baitin, mm-hmm. right? Because that baitin endorsed it, and therefore that baitin presumably has a moral obligation. Prenup, a form of. Law, yeah, know. it requires an arbitration agreement to right because it's, it's it's an additional support agreement. Does it, does it use the term Shara Karavladin? It does. You say Shara Karavladin in it. It does. Yeah. Right. It's all it's all in the okay. it's all a standard halachic contract, but it's also an American arbit, American arbitration contract. The Beitin has to use procedures that are approved by the Code of Arbitration, right? Uh, right? And I would think now this is an argument that you know, unfortunately. I don't know that I could tell anyone now to go to the Boston Beitin in reliance. On the arbitration agreement because the personnel change and there's there isn't that kind of institutional mm-hmm. commitment. Um, but the Beit of America, I think it would take an enormous shift for the Beit of America when so many people have signed contracts in reliance on the Beit of America enforcing the arbitration, mm-hmm. the, 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 the prenuptial agreement to change that would be obviously wrong. Mm-hmm. Right? For a Diane to suddenly say, I think that this aspect of the, con- of the prenup is unenforceable because I hold like the position of X, which thinks right. that, right? That, right? You understand that, right? But it's not because theoretically it's impossible. Mm-hmm. It's because people have signed, right? The Beitin allowed people to sign a contract in reliance on it. Mm-hmm. And therefore you can't say, right? The Beitin can't suddenly say, oh, Kimley likes, like, like such and such a person who holds, like, right? Who holds it, right? That would be, right? If Beitin did that, it would be laughable. The Beitin, Beitin America have a role in the actual formulation of yes. the contract? Yes. Okay. Beitin America is, right? Beitin America is, you know, is basically the official source of right of the right of the versions of the document that right, it it varies them as as issues come up in right and how secular secular courts interpret the document um, things like that, but so when people try want to try one of a fancier prenup, mm-hmm. so one of the things you have to tell them is your halachic arguments may be very good, but nobody can tell you how a beitin will right, whether a beitin will enforce it, mm-hmm. because there are always going to be arguments pro and con, and you can't know because there's no record. And unless a Beitin goes on the record in advance saying, I will enforce it, so you, right, you can say, I, I have a reasonable chance of knowing what, what I think those Dayanim will do, but the personnel can change tomorrow. And then, right, and then people will, you know, 
people will think differently, just as we now watch on the Supreme Court, right, when the personnel changed. The laws changed. We understand that it's really shocking to people if you have something in real and you say, what happens if it was always a false reliance, right? So you could imagine a world in which uh, right, in which a, a Diane got onto the Bates of America and slowly got a majority, right, having argued that it was always a mistake, you know, and got a majority, but it might take 50 years, and even, and there would be massive public protests, because how can you undo something that so many people have, right, have signed a document in reliance on, right, that's the, um, right, that's, I think, so, right, so halakhic courts have to function the same way as regular courts do, and it's a chicken and egg question, because it's hard to pe- tell people to go to halakhic courts until you have until you have reasonable expectations, both procedurally and substantively, and it's hard to have reasonable expectations unless people go. Right. Right? So that's, that's the chicken and egg question uh, you have, where you know, mostly people go um, you know, for bad reasons, if, for example, if they, there are reasons they don't want to go to court because there are aspects of the transaction they think the courts will disallow out of hand, uh, or they'll force them to disclose things they don't want to disclose publicly, so that's one kind of case Bates and gets, or cases between uh, between uh, employees and employers of Jewish institutions where, uh, where they think it'll cause a public shanda or, be, or cost them both tons of money, so they're willing to go to Beitin because they have a certain amount of trust that Beitin will handle it uh, with justice. Uh, but you have lots of cases where institutions are not willing to go to Bate Din because they're afraid that they, they, don't, they, don't have, they, don't, they can't tell their board. Their board is, not, is worried that it won't be handled in the way they, the contract won't be handled in the way they expected, and they mm-hmm. think that has to be. And sometimes that's right, and sometimes it's, you know, justice, aside from the halakhic issues of other going to secular court, and sometimes it's just because people, you know, people want to be cruel to people, and, the, you know, and then it's good that a Beitin has a reputation of not allowing corporations to be cruel. On the other hand, there are also Bateidin that, you know, that function like the arbitration courts of uh, major corporations, right, where they lock you into... They lock you into arbitration agreements with, with arbitration courts that are rigged. Right. So you can have but they didn't that have relationships with, mm-hmm. right? Where they'll still with it, you know where you know they'll never they're never going to inf- uh, allow you um, to do that. Right? That's we have yeah, again the, the Beit of America. I, I give you know my friend Rabbi Yonah Reese enormous credit because he uh, he transformed the Beitin system by setting by working with the expectations. That we had to match the transparency of secular courts. Um, and that's right, you know that you know that, that precedents have to be available and procedures have to be right have to have to be have to have to be stated up front, uh, right? And there are and there are regulations about chain of evidence, all those sorts of things, which you know just didn't exist in Bethlehem. You don't have right, and but the problem is that that makes it more expensive. Uh, right, because you have, right, because it requires more personnel, right? So, and we still, you know, the whatever, you know, the uh, for the, the 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 international debate team has a budget larger, I think, than all modern Orthodox but they did in the United States put together. For all it's you know, for these issues, and it's only a one issue thing, and and um, have all sorts of issues what they do. Um, so that's, uh, but no one has, there hasn't been any any move towards funding a. Um, of unorthodox uh, court system, even you know there was a hope once that the move towards uh, alternate alternate dispute resolution, right towards ADR, would create space for, but they didn't uh, play a real role in the community. But we haven't so far done it. Mm-hmm. Okay, so let's talk about this this chuba. This is one of the we're not going to get it done tonight, but this is right. We'll get a, some of it. This is one of the wildest chuba I think that I've ever read. Uh, Rukuk is brilliant. There's no question about that. Um, 
I want to read the question carefully, and I'm not trying. I'm not sure I understand the question perfectly. I have reached out on Facebook to Rav Cook scholars to see if they can tell me, but I haven't gotten any response yet. So we're gonna, I'm going to read this uh, as Rosh Hashiva, which, you know, as opposed to, which is, all I can do is read the case. I can't tell you what the reality behind it is. Uh, it's not dated, I don't think. Oh, it is dated at the end, I think, that he's still in Europe. It's before he gets raised. It's, sorry, it's Tafresh Nun Gimel. So it's 56, 53. So uh, we're still in the, in the late 19th century. Uh, so he's still in Europe. He hasn't had any of the experience in, uh, in Israel. You can read Yudha Mirsky's stuff about how he develops generally in life. Uh, he seemed to have enjoyed his rabbis. <laughs> That's how you can read this. He had a good time as a rabbi. Uh, okay, here we go. Bedin Rav Shekibel Ketav Rabbanos Me'ezei Kehila Acharei Shekvar Nigmar Zman Hitkashruto Im Bnei Adato HaYishana So the way I understand it is there's a fellow who he has a, he has a job but the job has kind of petered out in the old community. And now he has gotten a new job. Now, there are, his background is that there's an enormous amount of, um, of mobility among rabbis in Europe in the late 19th century. That's my, you know, and it works the same way it does now, right? There, you, know, you, you, go, you go from small to big, right? You know, and, if you, and you try, if you're a small town, you, you, might, you, know, you, you can have two approaches. You can say, we're going to try and build up our prestige, so even though we can't get so much money, but, there's, right, but we are, we're a prestigious community and people want to come here. Or you can settle into your role as a double A or triple A uh, rabbinic team, and that way you get right, and you want to be the right. So you want what you want to set, what you want to get is a reputation that people who come here go on to get the big jobs, uh, right? And then there's the jobs which are dead end jobs that's small, and right, nobody really wants, uh, you know, except for the people whose vision has always been, I want to be the rabbi of a small town, uh, and such forth. So this rabbi's job is right? It doesn't mean the contract was over, I don't think. Uh, it might mean that the original term of the contract was up, but the expectation was that it would just roll over forever. Mm-hmm. But I think right, it's one of those two. And now he goes and gets another job. And he gets a Ketav Rabbanut, right? So he's all happy he's going to get another job. But now the old community says, no, no, we really want him to stay. And the question is, is he allowed to, or right, he already... Right, he already finished the deals, right? So the question is, right, are they allowed to stop him? And is he even allowed to listen if they want to? Right? Is he allowed to break his new contract and go back to his old contract? Uh, okay, right, because there aren't official, right, we don't have official rules of free agency. As far as you know, right, there's, you know, you can treat it as there's a reserve clause that rabbis are bound to the community they, right, the community they, uh, uh, right, they, they signed with originally until that community releases them. All sorts of ways you can read it. And right, so he says, "Ikar dinhu mehad amar damarav poel yachol lachzorbo afilu v'chasi hayom mitam avadayhem v'lavadim lavadim." So the question is, we have a basic rule that workers can break their contracts. Rabbis are employees; they should be able to break their contracts. Right? There should be no such thing as a binding past contract, regardless. Especially if it's something the contract may have ended, it's not clear. Well, the original, especially the original contract may have ended, or it repeated, right? Whatever, right? So you would think this is a fairly straightforward thing. On the other hand, you might have, you know, this, people are always con- trying to do that, right? Rabbis are always trying to leave, and people are, and, and cantors, uh, right? And people are always trying, anyone who's good, people are always going to try to hold on to them. You might think, no, it's not worth it, they don't want to be here. No. Anyone who's good, people want to hold on to, because the alternatives, even if they're there willingly, are worse. <laughs> right? That seems to be, sometimes they just want to mess them up. Okay. So he says, I so he says, even if we were to say 
that, right, this is why I think that it can't be at the end of the contract. Even to say that, the, that his original contract said you are the rabbi of the next 10 years. It should be binding. It shouldn't be binding, right? Because work because contracts are not binding on employees. Then you're lafum riyata. That's what it seems superficially. But if you look at it, when you look at it, you'll see that he's not allowed to break his contract. What he means by that is his new contract. Right? So this is a trick. This is the whole tshuva rhetorically is about how rabbis can't break their contracts. But in practice, what he's doing is going to tell this person, not only are you allowed to go to the new place, you're not allowed to go back so that your old people have no claim at all. So my question fundamentally about this contract is the purpose of the contract to write what he really thinks about labor law and to say you know, rabbis are absolutely bound by their contracts? Or the purpose, it was the purpose to insulate the rabbi who's asking the question from any blowback at all from his old place? How can he say that he's bound by the new contract? He said before that employees are not bound by the contract. So he's going to say there's a right. You might think right if you if you look at you would say look the question here is is he bound by to his old place or can he go to the new place? He says no, that's not the right question. The right question is he has a contract with the new place, and to go back to the old place would be breaking his contract with the new place. Is he allowed to do that? And his answer is going to be no. He's not allowed to break the new contract, or he was previously. There's no longer a contract. Principle, just, where does this principle fit of uh, the low of right? So that's our, our basic principle is that, is that some kinds of workers are not bound by contracts. Right. And he's going to spend this whole shuva coming up with like 18 different reasons that even though there is this default setting in halacha that workers can't be bound by contracts, yeah. that doesn't apply here. Yeah. Now the result of that for overall labor law, from my perspective, is going to be pretty horrifying. But the outcome in this case is actually to free the person. So he has to deal with, right, to what extent is this really what he thinks? Uh, to what extent can you narrow it, right? So a lot of his arguments are only about rabbis. That's why it's really fascinating that he does so much to, in principle, prevent rabbinic mobility during their contracts. But on the other hand, right, in practice, what he's doing is enabling this rabbi to, right, to get to his new place when the old place is trying to hold him. So he's... In a sense, what he's doing is he's breaking the reserve clause um, by coming up with a new with a, with a new with a new with a new notion of very strongly binding contracts. So if you just get a contract from the new place, then the old place right, then the, right, then the old place can't hold you anymore. Uh, but the pro- what he does there is going to be let's say so we we have I think I think it's eight, eighteen different reasons. We'll see we'll see how many of them we get through. And some of them, as I teased, right, some of them are utterly astounding. So here's number one. So we saw that there are uh, there, that there's a fundamental machloke, um, which may right the Gemara in Bav Metzias says um, in one version is a machloke between Rabbi Dosa and the Rabbanon uh, whether that the whole principle of avadim of avadai heim vlaadim lavadim applies to workers called kablanim as opposed to workers called schirim. Now the question is, what's the boundary between them? So the Gemara has a fairly straightforward boundary that poalim are, uh, are workers who are paid by the day and do not um, bring any, spe- any special skills or tools. Kablanim are workers who are paid by the product 
and bring, and bring special skills and tools. That is a whole lot of space in between them, right? So it's simple to say that, it's, that the boundaries, whether they're paid by time or paid, right, or, or, or paid by piecework, but we pointed out, Deborah, you know, as insists, I pointed out every time we do this, that it's easy to create a combined contract and disguise one as the other. So like, I'm paying you, I'm paying you, you know, to produce, you know, by the widget, but I'll fire you if you don't produce 50 widgets, widgets an hour. Right? So I'm paying you by the right. So I'm formally paying you by the widget, but I'm in practice, right? You know, you're right. You're I'm, I'm paying you by the hour. So this is one of the areas where it's really important for Allah to have precedent, and there isn't enough. So here's what he says. So what Rav Kook does is he says the phrase I'm going to take that claim that you can't be a slave with perfect seriousness and the definition of a slave is you don't get time off. The definition of a slave is that for the term of the contract you are completely in the possession of the employer. And that's what a schir yom is. You're hired by the day. And therefore, you have to, at least you have to, you have to justify every moment. And it might be that you get, right, that we, because, right, so we have the, the Gemara of the previous paragraph, which says that, there, that um, we hold community standards, right, are, are built into all contracts. So there's, whatever the community standard is for coffee breaks, right, right here, why Torah is, or for, right, or for lunch and all that, right, so you're about, but you have to justify every second. And, you, and the only way you can, t- you can stop working is if there's communal expectations that you're not, you can't work that hard. But you're never on your own. It says, however, right? Because that's, he says, it's shenikar shu evid. That's right, makes it obvious that you really are a slave and not in your, right, and, and, don't, and, don't have, and don't have your own, not in your own possession. Rabbanus. He says, but that's not true about rabbis. Sheraka chovalav lahorod kol dvar sheilat yisr veheter v'ladin kol din torah she Rabbis are not hired to spend their whole day working. They are hired to take care of halachic issues as they come up. This is the lie that I love quoting. Everyone knows that rabbis have lots of time in which there's no communal work at all. <laughs> That's why I feel like it's hardly got What was his job? <laughs> uh, you know, that was a... Uh, Apparently, his right? you have to assume that this was that he's that, you know, that he's not in the fantasy role. That this was his job. That you got to be available. You were you were a you were a you were a Diana. You were a Hoskin. You weren't a community or particular rabbi to consider now. He was rabbi of the city, but the question is, what are the responsibilities? So now you have to be careful because there might be formal informal responsibilities. And it might be people expect you to visit all the sick. And to right, and to know and to know everything, just they don't right. It's not written in the contract, which happens a lot, right? In, in we're not, in we're not talking about a sure rabbi that we know in America, though. No, we're talking about an, a, a European community rabbi, but yeah. the, lots of European community rabbis do not give you descriptions of their life <laughs> as quite as leisurely yeah. as uh, as right as uh, as as he does. Yeah, yeah. Sounds like an on-call rabbi. Not responsible, although it says, yeah, meaning what that he's got a paskin, right? Cold, varshil, he's a right? Anybody, right? Anybody has it, he doesn't have to give a Tuesday night shear, he doesn't have well, he has only Tuesday night, he doesn't have to give a 24 hour shear. He's not, right? If he's doing something else right now, nobody can say, Why aren't you working? Uh. Right? That's that's his claim, right? 
So I said, well, you know, you know, the closest, you know, aside from, you know, from my interim job here, yeah, when I was at Harvard Hill, so that, right, so a lot of the time, uh, right, when I'm preparing for shear, right, the problem is, like, so many people, is anybody who have any kind of, does anybody have any kind of time autonomy um, work the right, you know, and, and where their general job is to, um, to get themselves ready, right, you know, if you're an athlete, right, so you, right, so you have to stay in shape, but they don't, legis- they don't require you to be in the gym now, they just require you to show up for the game in cardio shape. So according to Rav Cook, so then, right, so you're not an Evid because you can decide. Right? It's a really interesting vision, uh, right? It's a very narrow vision of, of to what this, um, right? There are very few employees, uh, right? Any, any employee who has any kind of time autonomy, right? Uh, right? You know, employees who are allowed to read, uh, allowed to read technical manuals. Mm-hmm. Right? So how, how narrowly, but that's his first line. He says, rabbis, are not right. If you say kiyavadayim, is not defined, you know, by a whole set of technicalities. It's really just defined by, are you in someone else's possession? So, rabbis are not in someone else's possessions because, right? Because they have free now. Again, if you have a con- rabbinic contract which says you're going to spend Tuesday morning doing this and Wednesday morning doing this, right? Or gives you such, the, you know, the test case is going to be what, you know, which is often the issue. What happens if the community believes that the rabbi's contract gives them? Mm-hmm. Uh, right, gives them gives them time because they don't. Why does it take you so long? Uh, right, so you know, for example, many communities have uh, a big issue is um, time spent with con- with conversion candidates. Uh, you know, how much time should you spend on that? Right, so if you, right, do rabbis have discretion about how much time they want to spend on conversion candidates? And that, if if you spend time on conversion candidates, that eats up an enormous amount of your time. It can right if you right if you're successful and you attract candidates and you spend the right amount of time with them. On the other hand, the community can look at you and say, "What are you doing? Mm-hmm. Right, we need you to work with right to work to make sure that well, the Membership member first, and then you can spend more time. So maybe yes, maybe no. Probationary member. Maybe yeah, right? You know this again. You know, I'm not right. You know, a big. Um, you know, for some communities, right? You could say that that is a great way of membership recruitment, right? For some communities, it really is. Or you could argue that, uh, which I would argue that to some extent, a community hires its shul rabbi to provide the necessary services that a Jewish community should have. Uh, right and right and so like the whole question: Should the rabbi spend time teaching classes for the unaffiliated, even if they're not going to become right become members of the shul? So you can say, look, it's part of the obligation of an Orthodox unity to make sure that Torah is accessible to everybody. And you could argue, no, right? That look, the the job of rabbi is to, right. That would Rukuk plainly thinks that the rabbi. I think you know, and if it's better, if you think that the rabbi. Having a rabbi is a service provided by the members of the community to the Jewish community and not a relationship with the specific people who pay for the contract. But that would fit with his career path, right? Yeah, their cook eventually becomes. <laughs> you know. It's also, you know, a difference where you have, you have town rabbis versus shul rabbis. I mean, the shul rabbi, uh, again, the expectation is that each community might vary. But uh, it might be so you're expecting him to serve the needs of the, the shul community. So it could be, but that's right. That's part of your question, right? right. So what is the at least the same challenge we have, um, you know, with um, with day schools, right? Should people pay for day school? Only parents pay for day schools, mm-hmm. or does the community have an obligation to have a school? And everyone, right? Everyone should pay for that. So the same token, the community should have a figure who is right. Converts should have accessible right. 
mentors. And so, right, right, so that now there are ways in which you can try and shift the financial model. I, I was always, you know, I was very impressed. Cleveland had a model for special ed for um, special ed for Salmaturas that every shul paid a per capita tax, um, right? You know, a membership it was a, a membership surcharge to set up the special ed Talmud Torah program. Not how many students the shul had. But it was paid per member, because that would, right, and sometimes your shul would have more, and sometimes the other shul would have more, and right, you just set it up that way, right? And that's how, in principle, you know, it's like we talk like, you know, what, how a, should right, agencies? There are two two models. One model is funded that way, and one model is funded by the proceeds of um, of the hashkacha, and that gets you very different uh, very different outcomes, mm-hmm. and a beitin. Right, what, right, so the model that we had for a long time was a Beitin is funded by Kashrut. But that's not really the, the right model. The right model is that it should be funded by the community as a service community, whether you use it or not. Right? So there are lots of issues in terms of the Jewish community generally that should be addressed that way. Um, and I think that that would be the way in which he's thinking. Right? You say you can't, we just can't raise the money right? because the shul really needs that service. Those are all real things. But in principle, in principle I'm happier with the community Thinking about what its uh, right, what its responsibilities are to the Jewish community, as opposed to what services it wishes to purchase. Um, and yeah, so you know, we talk about let's say, should the rabbi arrange for for food to be kosher at a standard which his community won't eat, but because there are lots of other people, right, who are willing to eat, right? So is it is it a, a reasonable Part of a rabbinic job to right to give a, to give a weak hashkacha so that the the people who aren't observing in the community will be eating kosher. Assume, so if you think that's a value, you can say it's not a value because kosher is about intention. And if they don't care, we don't care. Mm-hmm. You can say no, it's the right people will make choices, and so it's worth it for the rabbi to provide that kind of hashkacha, even if he then tells people that in the shul or knows that people in the shul aren't going to eat there. Right? That's another kind of uh, another another kind of question to. Um, Right to work out, right to work out that way, and so right Chabaz obviously work on that model where the right where, but they don't work on a due system; they work on a, on a donation system, which right which, which um, which sets that out. Um, and I you know I am Baruch Hashem, right? I am blessed that uh, right that the bulk of my funding isn't local, and so I don't have to right so I don't have to uh, think about it that way. Um, okay. Um, Right, so we said in Kenya does no sin, she ain't schirus raharbonim, alzman, kiem al inyan hamalachus fapulos shalav lasot, im kane no kiem evid latsmo. The Rashi's language in Bav Metzia about why a kablan is, right, is bound by a contract in a way that a sechir is not. Right, Rashi's language is that a kablan is his own evid. Now, we, and Rav Kook will mention this, right, we see that there's a machloket about whether the issue is whether you're bound by the contract and a, and a kablan is bound by a contract and a sechir is not, or whether the issue is that a sechir can break the contract without incurring any loss, and a kablan can also break the contract, just they, right, just they, they have to bear all the costs, uh, right? So that, right, Rav Kook is going to assume that a kablan can be, can be held to specific performance. Not just that they, right, that it's actually not right for them to break the contract, maybe not illegal for them to break the contract, not just that they have to pay all the expenses. So Rav Cook says the fundamental conceptual distinction is are we paying you for time or are we paying you for work? 
right? He acknowledges that, right? But then he says, but, and again, because, you know, he's brilliant, he understands that that is easily fungible. So what he says is, so, but I, looking at the rabbinic job, right, since there's, when, when nothing comes up, nobody holds you accountable, right? That's what makes it clear that you're being paid for the work and not for the time. And if you're being paid for the work, you're a kablan. And if you're a kablan, he thinks that you, right, he works at this point on the assumption that you are fully bound by the contract. Okay, that's argument number one. Which I, you know, the rhetoric is astounding. Okay, number two. Okay, so he says, "V'yesh l'amar d'dami l'hadi trumas hadeshin simen shin chavtet v'kibel alav lasot lo yain kol yemei habatzir." So the trumas hadeshin has another question, which is right, which is the kind of contract I talked about. You are making wine the entire harvest season. <coughs> so have I hired you for the harvest season, or have I hired you to make wine? Have I hired you hired you for the harvest season? Rather, hire you to make wine, right? Because I'm not telling you necessarily when to make the wine. Because at the end of the day, all the grapes have to be made into wine. Mm-hmm. So the Kronos says, mm-hmm. So he says, says that if I pay you by giving you a percentage of the barrels and not by time, so then... Um, right, so then, um, so in that case, your contract is framed in terms of the product, the wine, and not in terms of the time. So the term of says, in that case, right, if I hire you to make wine the whole harvest season and your pay is a percentage of the wine you produce, that contract makes you a kablan and not a sakhir. But Rav Kook says the language. It sounds like the Trumas Adeshin is making a language point. How did I write the contract? And the pay tells me right, makes is what is what is what disambiguates. He says, but what about but Rabbanus, We don't do it that way. I don't pay you per psak. Right? That's, that's not the kind of contract. Now there are people who, you know, who are paid that way. Um, right? That's you know like the, um, the you know the, the ones where if you have a set fee for selling chametz, for example. Right? That was a way of formally paying you. Right? There. Are, are people who pay you, you know, you know, who write you a check every time you pass in a kasher shaila for them, and that's because they're you know dealing with a market where in fact people didn't have the the, the over contract the overall contract wasn't enough, and so you had to build in tips essentially, mm-hmm. um, which you know some people thought was great and some people thought was really quite. Uh, when I took over the chametz selling in Cambridge Somerville from the right the, the person who served as rabbi of Tremont Street. Uh, had been doing it for many years, but he was getting older, so I took it over. But I made everyone write a contract to him, because uh, right? that was part of right. That was part of how he survived. And I, you know, and I had a, I had a salary from Harvard Hill, so right. So okay, I, it needed to be done, but he right, but he needed to he, he needed to be paid, right. So that's because um, that's how it was, he didn't have a separate contract that would support him if right, you know, in retirement. Um, Okay, so he says, He says, yeah, but guess what? Our custom is that rabbis, get, that rabbis do get paid, uh, presumably in advance by both parties, whenever you, have a, whenever you, whenever you set up a beitin. Mm-hmm. And that is right, that's the way the beitin here set it up also was that there'd be, you know, the, the way you generally set it up, right? Since there is no, the only communities that have salaried dayanim are uh, broyers, maybe still in some Hasidic communities. So if you want to set up a beitin in most other communities, Chicago, um, 
So most communities, what you do is you pay the judges a fixed hourly rate that's determined in advance and paid by both parties. For example, like arbitration, you go to arbitration, you have to pay something. I mean, you know, types of different fees. But yeah, that's how it's set up. Right, that's how it's set up. It's set up ad hoc. Yeah. And then there's a price schedule for like, I think, you know, in terms of rent, you know. Yeah, unless you have a fixed, you know, a fixed arbitration service. Um, that um, fee for survey pay this is the fee to resolve this dispute maybe below maybe their ranges I guess maybe dollar values perhaps you know and yeah some of them are for hours some of them, my mother was an arbitrator for an, and a mediator so I right so so I write you know and in in fixed systems and in right in non fixed systems so I so I have some sense of how that was done but he's telling us look at it. one of the ways that, right one of the ways in which rabbis made money was that when there was a din Torah um, right they would right he would get Right, there would be some kind of fixed fee for serving as a dayan, maybe not right. And therefore, he says, "Imkain yeshal zechiv kablanut." So now he's going to claim. So actually, it's a mixed contract. You have a right. You have an, You have a, You have a contract on time, and you also have a contract on services. Are so, we saying that same rabbi that that had like say a yeah. rabbinical contract? In addition, he'd get not tips, but additional provide additional supplemental services in these in these resolutions in these, in these uh, yeah. disputes. Which which could be paid by likely paid by different parties anyway. Right, paid by both parties presumably. But we're saying, would it be, for example, the community rabbi would have a, a salary, and in addition, he would collect. It was presumably from members of the community. Okay. Right, but when they had a dintera or they were selling the chametz, right, they would pay him specific services. Story. So now Rukuk says, ah, so right, so he says, so for those purposes, he's a kablan, and he's bound by that contract, therefore. Right, so this contract says you're going to be rabbi of this community for right for the year, and during that time, right, you will serve as dayan if people come to you with a Torah for which you will be paid X. So it's a mixed contract. So he says you're bound by that part of the contract. And if you have a mixed contract, he says we're going to write why why should the fact that you also are an hourly worker enable you to break? Right now, that obviously is very dangerous on a policy level, because I can right because I can just do as every every anytime I want to enslave somebody. I'll enslave you, but I'll say, you know what? And guess what? Every once in a while, I will, right, I will ask you for a glass of water, and when you bring me a glass of water, I will give you a quarter. As our cook says, oh, wait, you're, still, you're bound by the contract to bring the glass of water. And if in practice that, what if in practice that makes it impossible for you to get another hourly work because at any moment I have first call, I can say, bring me a glass of water? Well, tough. Right? This is, again, why it's really necessary to have Principles and precedents, because right, because if you just set this up so that you basically, right, well, all you're doing is, and some, sometimes judges will do that, right, is they, they say, look, in this case I have to pass in this way, but they give you a roadmap, right, as to how to make sure that right that right that you that you won't be stuck this way again. That's what the job of your corporate lawyers are is to read this decision which went against you, and try and understand from that how to avoid the next one. So he's telling you the way to avoid workers breaking contracts is right is to write is to write an overall contract for all their time, and then a separate thing which gives them a fee for service for something they're going to do anyway, and then say you can't break the contract because you're bound by the right you're bound by the fee for service contract. Uh, right, and a, a good judge will have to find a way or a good right will to say no that only works if more than seventy five percent of your income comes from the right come from the services if the services are really so flexible that it allows you time to have a full-time job during normal working hours otherwise. But none of that's in the, none of that's in the tshuva. All right, so Kuk, the second reason is he says rabbis have mixed contracts and, and therefore they can't, for a rabbi to leave a contract means to leave cities. Right, right? Because you only have one rabbi per city. 
So in practice, saying that you can't leave this contract means you can't get... There's no Telereb then, right? There's no what? Telereb. Yeah, right. Yeah, right. That's not, that's, not, that's not the kind of job you're leaving for, right? You're leaving because there's another city, a bigger city, right, or a kinder city. So in practice, Rav Cook means that all rabbis are bound by contracts because the part of their contract, which is fee for service, will, right, will prevent them from going anywhere else. Right? That's a very dangerous ruling. It's brilliant, but it's, very dangerous, but it's a very dangerous ruling. Okay, number three. Um, and again, like, I have enormous ambivalence about this truva because... Just to clarify, so like, um, to a certain extent, I mean, when you, when the rabbi of the community, we have, we have you, I mean, you, I mean, they say you're paying for his time. Really, you're paying for even these services, even if they, you're paying for his availability to, to, to achieve the, to affect these services, right? So it's not as if you've got to work or you're paying for his time to be doing something that's correlated with time, you know? When you, when you, when the community is, is, is paying for rabbi, is it? I mean, it's, you see him as a kabbalah in a certain sense because I mean, really, there's an expertise there, right? And but the problem is, you need him available to be able to execute that expertise. So, execute, so right. So, Cook might say the difference is: look, let's suppose I hire you to answer all the. Um, well, let's say I got my brother-in-law. My brother-in-law is the tech. Right, let's, let's say, right, let's theoretically, I don't really know what his job is. Well, I suppose he's handled, he's supposed to be the person, the IT guy for a giant um, healthcare chain. So his job is to answer the questions that come up. But what happens if you know that the number of questions that comes up is, right, is so great that he has to be available 14 hours a day in order to answer these questions? And since he's required to answer them, he's not allowed to say, I'll cut back to you in five hours. So in practice, he has to be available 14 hours a day. Now you tell me, but if there's no question that comes up, nobody stops him from going off and playing ping pong. Right? Or, right? or reading novels, whatever it is. It just happens that it will never be such time. So many rabbis, right, that's what the, right, there are so many things come up, uh, right, that there's no time at all. Uh, now, what happens, you know, then you have the, the balance question, right? Now, we're interpreting a contract law. So I think this is common. A lot of people, one of my friends, I was very particular, right? His first five or six computer jobs, he would, within a month and a half, write a program that did his job. And then he would just hang out for a couple of months playing ping pong until, the, until you know, until everyone was clear and, right? and then he would move on because there was no job. So now, is his contract not an obvious contract because he could do it so rapidly? Right, that he could right that right that's that's not a really good precedent for we say the same contract for the same job with two different people one of them is an evid and one of them is not because it's just a question of how rapidly right how rapidly a person can do the job right so that's that's bad law uh, right so right so that right so that's part of the challenge you have to figure out if right if you're trying to write a serious legal system right right is figure out what what precedents can you set up that don't say the same contract. Unless you're comfortable saying, no, we can evaluate, what we'll evaluate is what would a normal person do the contract in? And if, and if it's a normal contract, then it's an obvious contract. But how do you do that, right? How do you know which, right, which person does? That requires, uh, that's, that's bad law in a different sense because it requires, uh, it, will, it means that every case will require an enormous amount of investigation by the judges, right? Expert testimony, how long does this contract, how long this contract really takes? So all sorts of reasons that um, like law is, you know, making law is a skill. Um, which is not taught in the rabbinic school. 
Uh, almost nobody, nobody teaches you how to make law, uh, right? You know, in a in a really in a really deep sense. You know, so some issue pastoral questions they try and begin now to have you, but there was none of that there when I was there. Um, okay, so let's see if we can get to number three, and then we're done for today. So now our cook says, you know what? A, right, you know, I, I understand that you could end up with a system that is just a question of the language of the contract. If you write the contract about the time, then it's, that, right, then it's obvious. If you write the contract about, the, about the, the, the wine, then it's money. But he thinks that it's not sensible, which is true on a moral level, Right, it's not sensible to make the issue depend entirely on the wording of the contract. To say, If I say, make me wine all harvest season and I'll give you a percentage of every barrel, that's not slavery. And if, even if you say, I'll give you a percentage of all the wine that I get, whether or not it's by barrel, I'll give you an overall percentage, that's also just a kablon. Because your salary depends on how much wine you make and not how much time you spend. But, um, right, but if I say I'm paying you for the, for the harvest, right, X amount, right, that would be an Evid. But that's astounding, he says. We understand that the obligation is the same. Right? It makes no difference. Right? So this is, right, this is a fundamental decision you have to make in, in contract law, is to what extent do, are you, right, do you wish to set up precedents bound by language? And to what extent do you wish to set up precedents, right, do you wish to set up precedents bound on substance? Mm-hmm. Uh, and there are, reasons for, there are reasons to do each of them in specific cases. Um, really what it is is, you know, that when you have no moral preference one way or the other, uh, or when you believe that the parties are negotiating on equal footing, so then, okay, it's their responsibility to write the language the right way. But if you think that uh, there's a moral difference and that one of these contracts, one, and there's an outcome that you have a, you have a Torah, let's say, right, or a Torah interest in preventing, or if you think that the, con- that, the, that the parties to the contract are on e- unequal footing, and so what will happen is that one party will force the other to write the, to write, to write the contract their way, and the other party doesn't have an adequate means of preventing that, right? So either, right, so then you'll, then you'll go by substance. So the interesting thing here is, well, you know, as Rav Cook has this, you know, this rhetoric, doesn't make any sense. Of course it makes sense. Lots and lots of things in law, and halakhic law depend on how you write the contract. Uh, but he thinks that here, there's an outcome that he thinks is, is untenable. We're intending it. Wouldn't this, uh, I don't know if it's coercion, but wouldn't any kind of like um, uninformed or, or a lack of agency by one of the parties or something um, undermine? Yeah, unless you think that they have a duty. Uh, you know, if, 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 I might think that, that it's good public policy to ensure that no one signs a contract without a lawyer. Mm-hmm. And therefore, if you sign a contract without a lawyer, I'll hold you to it because how else do I create a, a public policy system where people don't sign contracts without lawyers? Right, right, that, right. That's the, right, that's that, right, that, 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 that's the, the cheshbon I have to engage in. I might think that people, you know, that people you should. Moral hazard to then, uh, yeah, disqualify some, you know, somebody right. not being competent. I mean, but and yet, a certain level of competence to at least realize they, they need to have a lawyer. I mean, like if they, you know. Right, so that's what I'm trying to set up. Right, just like ignorance of the law is no defense. 
Yeah. All right. So I'm trying to set it up. I might, let's say, I might as a Torah person say that I live in a community where nobody bothers to learn halacha. And so, right, you know, so if I actually have the power to write a halacha court, I might say, look, so how am I going to get people to learn the halacha? Well, by telling them that you're bound by the contract, even if you didn't know the halacha, right? Or the other, right? So I often quote that uh, dialogue I had with my, with my friend again, Rabbi Reese again, where, so we have, right, there's, there are whole fights about what sort of heter, what sort of heter iska works to allow you to, in practice, collect interest on loans. So I asked him, right, so there are, right, there are articles there, right, and, you know, and people make decisions about legal doctors like a real. So if you get a million-dollar case in your court, right, where right, somebody says, look, you can't, for, you can't, you can't collect this, you know, this, inter, this, this, addition, this fee from me because it would be a violation of ribbis. And it turns out what this person did, right, the person who's, who wants to collect the money just, right, just asked the wrong rabbi for a contract. Right? He asked his shul rabbi, and his shul rabbi was not aware that the Vatican of America does not accept this form of heteriska, it requires the fancy heteriska. Are you really going to decide a million-dollar case? Because this person who's trying to do the right thing and sign heteriska, uh, right, is, right, is, right, signed the wrong contract? Or are you going to say something like, um, even though this was the written contract, but we know what the parties actually meant was, we are hereby agreeing to, right, agreeing to, it, right, to make this deal, on condition that it has been, on whatever form of heteriska is valid. Because their intent was to use... Because their intent was to make this agreement, this, right, this agreement, and we have no objection to their intent. Mm-hmm. Right, so there's an implicit clause in the contract like is... Both parties would have to have that intent. Yeah. Okay, but one part, you have an issue of one party. Whatever. Well, then it's no contract either, because one party, right, there's no meaning of mine. Okay. Right, they're all, right, if I want to do this, I have, right, I have lots of ways that I can do this. Yeah. Right, so, you know, so there are, there, you know, Bank Lumi, right? You know, where all all loans are incorporate a standard heteriska, which is not in the contract. It just says in the contract, all loans are in accordance with the terms of the heteriska that is up on the wall in Bank Lumi and is branch so and so. And you can take a look at that uh, if you want, right? So that's a so, right. So there are, there are ways of doing it if you want. So Rav Cook, so here, here Rav Cook says, I'm not willing to let it depend on the terms of the contract. That doesn't make any sense. We know it's the same thing. So he says, Menir Dati, but then he comes up with an astounding claim. Um, so he thinks that the that distinction, if you're working all day, so then I'm willing to say, okay, if you're working all day, so then if the contract is written by time, it's, it's not binding, and the contract is written by work, it is binding, because we need to disambiguate it. But he says, well, kolze, now we're in the, in the bullet print again, so Cook ends up saying, he says, you know what, and this is right, this is, we'll, we'll end with this, because this is where I think he and I are complete loggerheads if you take this chuba for real. My assumption is that what we really, we're really worried about people being avadim so we have a substantive end we want to reach. And the substantive end we want to reach is that people aren't Avadim. And therefore, in cases where people are Avadim, we shouldn't care about the contract law because in practice they're being Avadim. And when they're not Avadim, so then we can deal with the technicalities. Rav Cook says, no, actually we have no substantive end. We're perfectly fine with a contract, with a binding contract that makes people work all day. 
But if it's all day, then, it, right, then we raise the technical question to see if you write, did you write the contract in the way that lets it be binding. But if it's not, if it's not an all-day contract, if you have free time, then the issue doesn't even arise. Even if I claim I'm paying you for the time, but if, the, right, if I'm not actually occupying all your time, you're not an Evan. Right, so right, two complete right, right. He right, he. You know, so I'm applauding that he is fully conscious of the difference between making decisions on the basis of contract language or making decisions on the basis of substance. But he does it exactly the reverse of the way I would argue, right? Where he thinks that we have no substance of gain at all, and that's going to be the theme throughout this shiva. Well, we'll finish with this. But that's going to be the theme throughout this shiva. That at the end of the day, Rakuk is not worried about binding contracts on people who have to work all day. He doesn't need. He doesn't need. Need to rely on uh, the principle of uh, uh, below avadim, avadim, because because he thinks it only applies to a skiryom, and a skiryom is defined technically as somebody who is paid by the hour without any free time. And since in practicality, there's always be some free time. So he, you, you don't know what he would do in a discretionary case, right? You know, because because he, he could say that's not free time; that's community standard. Right, right, it's not actually free time. It's just right. Everyone understands that when you're paid for eight hours, you get to eat lunch, you get to go to the bathroom. Right, that's not free time. Right, that's time built into the work, uh, right, to the work exchange. So but unless he gets to a point where there, is he saying there, there are no truly, truly, there, there are no avadim. There are avadim. There are no avadim. There are no. There are no circumstances of avadim that cannot be evaded by writing the contract properly. Okay. Right, in the same way that there. You, right, if you think a well-done hitariska can get you any loan. Right, so you can say that the whole issue is a technicality. Right? So I got very upset uh, with Rabbi Ries because you know, he quoted as a case once, you know, I quote this a lot, the, that there was, New York State has usury laws. And somebody, right, so he cited as a successful hitariska, a case where somebody won, a, right, won uh, the right to collect something that, that would have violated New York State usury laws, on the grounds that this wasn't a loan. Because, <laughs> like, look, look, I have a heteriska. Like you're telling me that the purpose of a heteriska is to enable people to evade a law against usury? So, yay, because of heteriska, he can charge. <laughs> right? like, that, that, like, that's what Hilgos Ribbis is, is about now, right? Writing the right heteriska. Right? So I was very upset. You understand? It's very clever, yeah. but it's an issue. Um, but so we'll see in the context of the contract. So, there are, right, for example, there are people who hold that. The only Rav Moshe seems to hold this in one point that the only that the all the rules about a pole being able to be chozer hayom, all they mean is that starting the work and receiving the money doesn't count as a kinyan. But if you separately make a kinyan, uh, right in some in some way, right? Let's let's say that you you know you whatever raise a handkerchief, whatever whatever mode of kinyan is efficacious in this case, and you say I hereby make this kinyan for the purpose of making the contract binding. No problem. Right? That again, right, that assumes that we don't really, it's not the outcome that bothers us. Right? It's, the, right, it's a formality. Now you can say that we want, there's a middle position, which is that we want to put in the formality because we think that will discourage the outcome. But then you have to check in practice, is it working or not? If it's not working, right, then, you have to, then you have to recalibrate. Um, and the tension, which we get, we'll take it next, next week in the last year, which I guess we'll just finish with Cook, is the problem everyone has is, but evidivri is mutter. There is a thing as evidivri. So how can we ban a contract 
when right when evidivri is mutter. It doesn't make any sense to say that there's a kind of contract which is forbidden when it can't be worse than evidivri. And evidivri really is mutter. So there is, there is a way of saying no, that's not true. Evidivri has protections, and this kind of contract wouldn't have those protections. There is a response to that saying no, you know, whatever it triggers obvious, we we trigger those protections, right, right, right. And all we're doing is trying to right to make it harder to be an evid, not to ban being an evid, Right. Those are the ways in which you can. You can try to have this. And there's another way of thinking about it, which is the way I'm planning to set it up in Los Angeles on Shavuos, which is to say that what you have in Halakha is the same debate the Supreme Court had over the New Deal um, and things like you know, overtime laws, minimum wage laws. So the argument was that it's a, it's a, the freedom of contract is the fundamental contract of freedom, fundamental element of freedom. So to tell you that you cannot enter into a binding employment contract is a limitation on your freedom. It's paternalistic. So until, right, that's, that's the Lochner case, right, where the Supreme Court invalid, right, invalidated those sorts of rules on the grounds that they were, in, they were in positions of freedom of contract. And the counter-argument was you're not, getting what the, you're not getting the imbalance in the negotiating perspective. And so what you're doing is you're allowing slavery, right, in the name of freedom, you're allowing slavery. It's a question about either agency, right, or competence, or, 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 or what's the word, um, Fair, a fair footing. Right, fair footing, right? So that's the question. Is there, is there fair footing? So I have argued throughout that, uh, that, the fund, that, you know, that in a situation where individual employers are bargaining with individual employees, that's fair footing. But in, situation, but in situations where capital aggregates but labor doesn't, yeah. uh, then you have an unfair footing. And so, if, right, so unions, right, so I, neg- right, I can understand freedom of contract in between unions and employers, and freedom, right? But when you have when you have corporations which are intrinsically aggregated capital dealing with individual employees, that's a fundamental imbalance which I think halacha ought to recognize and law to recognize, right? That it requires it requires an imposition on uh, it requires limiting freedom of contract because the contracts will be uh, will be inequitable. The counter is to claim that we'll just ban unconscionable contracts, mm-hmm. right? Right? And who am I to tell you, right? You know, like you know, what. My kid needs, right, we need the money, and you're telling me my 16-year-old kid can't work. Right? Why are you doing that? I need the money, and you're telling me that I can't offer to work 60 hours a week at the same rate, right? So isn't, right, I want to do the job, right? You know, and all the arguments, right, it doesn't let me, right, I don't have skills, so I can't get entry-level work because you're requiring, because you don't, won't let me hire myself out for less than minimum wage, uh, right? So then the solutions to those are, are going to, you know, are to say, okay, we'll build in workarounds, but we'll try and restrict the circumstances in which you can use those workarounds. We'll call them internships. Right, but at what point do we, you know, when you're giving fifty-year-old men internships, flipping burgers, uh, McDonald's, right? So now he's just the intern. That's why he's flipping burger for five dollars an hour, <laughs> right? So we, right? So you say, oh, look, but that's the law. The law is you're allowed to pay interns less than minimum wage. Do we say no? Like, you know, we're going to come up with a fancy definition of an intern, right? You can't be an intern for more than six months. You can't be an intern if you're over twenty-six. You can't be, right? You can't, right? You can't, right? You, you, you right. have a mentoring program. Right. You have to, you have to show me that a certain percentage of your interns have progressed, right? To, right, right, all sorts of ways to do that. You know, what I try to get show is like you know that to do halacha. As serious law, you have to do all these things, right? You can't, you can't just say halacha is going to live in this little narrow corner. Yeah. Uh, right? If you want to do serious law, you have to treat all these, treat all these things, or else if somebody brings you a case, all you can do is rely on the secular law because you don't have the depth of resources to um, to handle, all right, to handle it, and that's why you need lots of cases. Because right, somebody comes up to me and says, "Look, they're paying the intern less than minimum wage. What do I do?" Right, so I'm going to say, you know, look, Rabbi Levine says halacha is against minimum wage laws. 
uh, because they interfere with freedom of contract. Yeah, yeah, and that's not that's not a that is not you know. So now, if it's a sophisticated halachist, I would tell you, you know, what halacha has a counter mechanism. Halacha counter mechanism is called Rashain Kol Ha'ir Lasiel Kitzatan, which is the right of trade guilds to ban each other from taking work at below market rates. Mm-hmm. Right. So halacha has a model for anti-competitive agreements among labor. Now the question is, but that's dealing with a very narrow guild element, right? The, right? Does that apply to people who are not members of the guild? Right? What makes you a member of the guild? Does it apply to unskilled workers? Right? All this, but right, there are resources in halacha that if I want to go that way, I can get there. But until they've been developed, and people have, right? You have, you know, then, oh, they last, you know, the, 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 the work that, that I think needs to be done as a, someone's, you know, someone's doctorate or starters is Professor uh, um, Weiss has a beautiful line at one point where he says, you know, that all the chuvot that are, all, all the, all the chuvot until 1990, right, the before I started dealing with Shilas, are all questions about, you know, people withholding, with, you know, what, what, people striking because they're not, because they're not getting paid, uh, right, whether, you know, all, all these, de- you know, the little thing, and now the questions are about billion dollar hedge funds. <laughs> right, you know, right, our, our contracts binding among those things. So you know, it's symbolic of the change in the community, and I think you can, right, you you can see that um, that poskim move over time from assuming that their constituents are labor to assuming that their constituents are management or capital, because that's where the from community moves. Yeah, and the question is, is that really you know that that is natural, but is it really what halacha should be? Or should we be very right? Should we be more class conscious and say no? You know what the the constituency of halacha should always be the poor. Uh, the law has to be applied uniformly, but the right, but the determination of the law should right should you know should have some consideration of uh, right, and that's a really that's a really big issue which uh, you know which has not um, which has not been set up. But you know, again, the counterclaim to that is that many of the more liberal positions. Only like many liberal positions only develop among the rich, uh, right? Where there's just sort of assumptions about duty and things like that, which might be which are beautiful among the poor, uh, right? The inability to imagine that being different is often the case. So you will find, you know, so Ramosha has all these fascinating notions which really need to be worked out. Which you know about uh, Ramosha assumes tenure for all jobs, and therefore he assumes seniority for all layoffs. Right? Now that's an amazing thing, right? He thinks right. He right. He do, he doesn't think that employers have a right to consider ability in layoff. They have to work by seniority because everyone has tenure. Now that's a really fascinating model, right? Which you know is not the contemporary model on the whole because we assume that right. We have a different model of the way in which people right. So that all that's worth um, worth thinking about. All right. All Thank right. you very much. Thank you.